could have my fellow rafters come on up and join me this morning. We've got some uh, folks that are going on a journey with us today. So if you guys would just come on up here and grab a seat on the, the raft for a few pre-trip instructions here. You can uh, go ahead and grab a life vest there if you would like. Go ahead and get that on. All right, I'd like to um, welcome you guys to our raft trip today down the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon. We're going to be doing about 18 miles down through the gorge today. And um, we need to start out, you need to know a few things about rafting, so I need to uh, give you a little instruction here. But as far as the paddle, you want your top hand up on the end of the paddle here, your bottom hand as low on the paddle as you can. If you hold it like this or like this, you don't get the power and control that you do with your hand up on top. Now, there's actually three ways to, uh, to paddle a raft. One is to make your arms do all the work. If you paddle that way by the middle of the journey, your arms will be telling you, you're making me do all the work. Second way to paddle is to put your paddle in the water and let the raft float past it. If you paddle that way by the middle of the journey, your rafting partners will be telling you, you're making us do all the work. But the, uh, the best way to paddle is to get the, water, the paddle in the water as vertical as possible, kind of push with your top hand as you pull with your bottom hand. That way your stronger upper body muscles are doing a lot of the propulsion. Now, there's a couple ways to steer the raft. One is by the side of the raft that you paddle on. If you want the boat to go to the left, those of you on the right would paddle harder. If you want the boat to go to the right, those of you on the left would paddle harder. If you uh, need to turn the boat around, what you would do is those of you on one side would paddle backwards and those of you on the other side would paddle forward, which brings up one of my favorite rafting stories. Um, years ago, I was in a raft with a group of high school girls and uh, we were going down, going down the gorge and I said to them, let's see if we can do some donuts. And this one girl who just happened to be blonde made the comment, I don't think we brought any. <laughs> but the good news is we eventually made it down through the gorge that day. Now, as, as we paddle down through the gorge, um, you're going to have to keep an eye out where you're going. There's going to be some shallow spots. The last few years in particular, the water has, has been kind of low here. So you're going to have to watch out for, for tree limbs. Um, usually on the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon here, not too many people fall out. Now, they rate rapids on a classification scale of one to six, with six being unraftable and five being like the Colorado River like you'd see on television. Uh, today on the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, there's only two rapids. One is a class one and the other is a class two. When you go through the rapids, um, there's several ways you can go through a rapid. One is with the raft pointing forward. That's the best way, of course. The uh, second best way to go through the rapid is with the raft pointing backwards. The worst way to go through the rapid is with the raft pointing sideways. Now, for many years, I told groups that it's impossible to flip a raft here on the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon. But a few years ago, I was proved wrong. Uh, we were going down through the gorge, and this one raft got sideways as they went around Owasi Rapid. And after they came through the rapid, they got pinned sideways on this big boulder. 
Well, they were fine, but this next raft came around sideways, and they kind of slid up on the first raft, and the current caught the inside of the second raft and flipped them over. Fortunately, it was a bunch of adult men and older guys who um, had some body weight to at least keep them insulated as opposed to being light junior high girls who wouldn't have a lot of body insulation for the water temperature at that time of the year. Now, if somebody falls in, it's kind of important that you get them out of the water as quickly as possible. Um, the water today is probably in the low 40s. Um, the air today is probably in the low 40s. I was going to wear my wetsuit today, but I thought I'd get a little too warm before I got through the message. But if somebody falls in, uh, what you want to do is you want to extend to them the handle end of a paddle. It's a little difficult for them to grab the wet blade. Um, even if they're not earning their way in the raft, resist the tendency to laugh at them and slap them across the side of the face and say, ha-ha, you fell in. Uh, pre pretend that they're doing their part of the work, okay? Now, if you get the raft up beside them and they're in the water, what you can do is grab hold of their life vest right here, and if they're in the water and you're in the boat, give a good solid yank, and if they have their life vest on and fastened properly, the body should come into the raft with the life vest. Uh, we'll hope that Tyler doesn't fall in. <laughs> so if you guys want to uh, grab a paddle there and get in rafting position. Now, if I'm going to accomplish my objective today of rafting down through the gorge, I'm obviously going to need some fellow rafters or partners, if you would like. So um, today, we're going to take a look at some of the partners in the gospel and partners in the harvest. The scripture talks about um, different partners in a number of different situations. If you have your Bibles this morning, open with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Those of you in the raft, um, you probably don't have your Bibles with you, so you can just uh, follow along. Exodus chapter 17. Here we have Moses headed for the promised land. They reach Mount Sinai. And a group called the Amalekites come out to do battle with them. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. It says the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Raphidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites, as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So I can just kind of picture the battle at this point. It's going back and forth. As long as Moses has his hands up, uh, they're winning. His arms go down. The Amalekites start winning. It's kind of going back and forth. And in verse 12, it says, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that the hands remained steady till sunset. So in order for Moses to accomplish his objective, he needed some partners. A couple observations about his partners. Some of them were on the hilltop with him, Moses 
and Aaron, or Aaron and her, who were holding his arms up, some of his partners, Joshua, was in a different physical location, off leading the troops in the battle. And many times in ministry, sometimes a person ministering has partners right there with them, sometimes they have partners in a different location. Paul also, in his ministries, um, had many partners on whom he depended and without whom he couldn't have survived. Uh, the scripture talks about Aquila and Priscilla in Philemon's. It talks about how Philemon was a partner to him, and Onesimus, and then, of course, his friend Luke. So the scripture many times talks about partners in ministry. Well, today I'd like to introduce you to some of my partners who are going down the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon with me. I'd like you to take a look at this picture up here. It's one of my favorite pics. And I'd like you to think in your mind, what do you see? Okay, got it figured out? Okay, it looks like the guy is standing on the water, on top of the lake. But what you see is not reality. If you were to let water out of the dam at Stillwater Reservoir and drain the water, you would discover that he is actually standing on a shoal or a rock pile. On Stillwater Reservoir, right out in the middle of nowhere, there can be these rock piles. I know because I've hit every one of them over the years with my motorboat. But if I were to drain the water away, you would discover that there's a big pile of rocks holding him up. This morning, what I'd like to do with you is I would like to drain the water away, so to speak, in my ministry. Sometimes when people look at the ministry of Christian camping services, this is what they see, one person. And they don't see the people. They don't see the, the, the reality that below the surface there are many people helping with the ministry. So the first fellow rafter that I'd like to introduce to you today in, in my ministry are those in my life who have been mentors. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Esther, chapter 4, where we have a classic example of somebody who had a mentor. The background in the book of Esther is Esther was a Jew. She was chosen to be a queen by the king. There was a guy by the name of Haman who had this plot to destroy all of the Jews, kind of a holocaust if it were actually to happen. Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle, who raised her, was her mentor, realizes what's happening. And he comes to Esther and suggests to her that she go before the king and prevail on behalf of the Jews. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 4, we discover that the queen couldn't just go into the king's present at any time. But it says here, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces knew that for any man or woman who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. So Esther's thinking, you know, I can't just go barging into the king's presence, even though he's my husband, 
you know, I by law I'm gonna I'm gonna die. And at that point, Mordecai, her mentor, so to speak, says this in verse thirteen. He sent back this answer. Do you think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, but you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. It wasn't Esther's courage that gave her allowed her to do what God wanted her to do, but it was Mordecai who urged her on, who helped her see the bigger perspective, who was a cheerleader. And many times in our lives, and I know certainly in my life in ministry, there are people behind the scenes who have mentored me. Sometimes a mentor in the life of a missionary is one who helps generate spiritual passion and vision. Gordon MacDonald, in one of his books, says this, All people need mentors until well into their midlife. The Christian community will probably lose a significant number of potential leaders who need this kind of strength that a mentor might have given. In life, not only do we have spiritual mentors, sometimes in life we have physical mentors. Now, a mentor isn't necessarily the same as a friend. But a mentor is somebody who comes into our life for a short period of time to help us through a situation. As I lay in Strong Memorial Hospital 15 months ago, 18 months ago, whatever it was, I try to forget it, and um, as I was recovering from open-heart surgery, I had a nurse who was a mentor who helped me through that significant struggle in my life. I I don't think I would have made it through had not not been for this one kind-hearted nurse. Well, in ministry, we're not out there alone. We need mentors. The idea of mentoring is is kind of like canoeing. When you go canoeing, um, you can go out by yourself, but it's it's a whole lot easier if you uh, have a partner with you. And so in, in my life and in my ministry, it's kind of like for the last 30, 35 years, I've been in the front seat of a canoe. And over that course of time, there have been different people in the back seat. When I started out as a teenager and my early years on staff at Family Life Ministries, it was a guy by the name of Jim who was on staff at Family Life Ministries who mentored me as a teenager. After I got done with Bible school and came back and joined staff, he was on staff and he was a mentor to me. He was riding in the back of my canoe, giving direction to my life. As I was at Bible school in Kansas City, I went through another period in my life where I had a different mentor. His name was Al Metzger. He was the head of our Bible Institute. And he taught us about ministry and about uh, reaching people with the gospel of Christ. And it was only for a year that Al Metzger was in my life. But he was a mentor during that year, riding in the back of my canoe, helping me to keep the canoe of my life going straight. My early years in ministry, one of my mentors was a guy by the name of Bill Gothard. Some of you recognize that name. I can remember as a staff member at Family Life Ministries, getting on a bus with the rest of our staff, heading to Rochester, and sitting in the Dome Arena 
as Bill Gothard shared life principles with us. I think there's even a couple of people in the audience that I can remember being teenagers at that time when, when we were up there. And I could tell you some stories about them, but I won't. Over the following years, I went to a number of pastor seminars with Bill Gothard, both in New York and in the state of Pennsylvania. And there was a period in my life when he was a spiritual mentor, even though he didn't know me personally and I didn't know him personally. As I was in Bible school, I was over at a neighbor's house one day and I picked up a copy of a Christian paper called The Sword of the Lord. And in there, there was an ad for a pastor's conference to be held in Indiana. following year, I, I went to this pastor's conference, and there one of the speakers was a pastor by the name of Jack Hiles. Jack Hiles ministered to my heart at that conference, and I discovered that Jack Hiles in those days had his own pastor's conference yearly out in Hammond, Indiana. And so for probably seven or eight years, Jack Hiles was a mentor in my life as I would travel to Indiana, and not only learn about God's word, but learn principles of life. He was a mentor, riding in the back of my canoe, helping me in the ministry, a partner in the ministry. Sometimes the mentors in our life, sometimes the mentors in your life are authors. Right now, I'm going through a stage where an author by the name of Gordon MacDonald is having an impact on my life. Back in February, I was at a camping conference down in Pennsylvania, and this guy was speaking. Um, he wrote some books back in the mid-'80s that were bestsellers, and somehow I, I missed his books back in the '80s. But at the con camping conference, he was talking about resiliency and making the last 20, 30 years of our life effective for God. And I came home from that camping conference, and I got several of Gordon McDonald's books, and I've been working my way through them, and right now, Gordon McDonald is kind of riding in the back of my boat, mentoring me. So mentors change over the years. Sometimes a mentor can be a dead person who, through his writings, through his biographies, influences our life. Sometimes a mentor in our life can take on the role of a rebuker. As I've been reading Gordon MacDonald's books, he's been rebuking me about some things in my, my life and in my, my personality that, that I need to work on and need to change. But the scripture also mentions people who are mentors who are rebukers. Paul, in his letters to Timothy, at one point he says, Timothy, you're kind of losing your passion to pastorally confront people. In the book of Mark, Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, Peter, you're looking at this from a human point of view and not from God's. Now, we don't like to be rebuked. When somebody rebukes us, we kind of bristle and um, you know, our, our self-image is on the line. But I believe in, in life and I believe in my life. I'm so thankful for mentors who have been partners in ministry with me. The next partner that I'd like you to meet today is the affirmer or the encourager. This, one, this is someone who comes alongside of us and attaches value to what we do. Turn with me in Scripture this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 1, if you would. Mark, chapter 1. Let's see some scriptural examples of 
affirmers or encouragers. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here we see the Father affirming the Son, saying, Jesus, my Son, what you've done has value. In the book of Philemon, as Paul writes to Philemon, he affirms him because of Philemon's love toward all the saints. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, he affirms them for being an example to the believers in Macedonia. So what is an affirmer? How are, how are they a partner in ministry? Affirming is not just giving empty compliments that are carelessly tossed around, but we all need affirmation that what we're doing is of value. When affirmation is denied, specifically among younger people in ministry, they, they struggle. They wonder if they're making a difference. How many pastors do you know of, young pastors do you know of and heard about that were at a church, church problems came, they felt like nobody's learning from me, nobody's growing from my teaching, Nobody wants me here, and they've left the church, and some of them have left ministry altogether. Everybody in ministry needs people in our life who are encouragers, who affirm us. If we're not affirmed, our tendency is to, to leave the ministry. Sometimes people in ministry feel like they're a kayaker in a storm sitting there all by themselves with no partner in the back of the boat. And as the waves of storm are hitting them and they're being tossed about, they're like, I'm here all alone. I'm struggling. I'm going down. And that's why affirmers, encouragers are so important in the life of somebody in ministry. This morning in, in my life, in my ministry, some of the affirmers in my life, back in in uh, September, I was filling in a few, a few weeks at a church here in the region, and a lady came up to me after the morning service, and she said, Brian, thank you for your message this morning. She said, usually when I come to church, I find myself thinking, oh, this person over here needs to hear that message, or this person over here needs to hear this message. But she said, Brian, this morning, I felt like your message was for me. It ministered to my heart. And at that moment, that lady was a partner in my ministry. She was affirming what I was doing. This summer, as I was at Stillwater Reservoir with a group from Camp Mandeville, a young man by the name of Jonathan came up to me the last day as we were still out at the beach. And he said, Brian, thank you for your messages this week. The teenagers paddled back to the dock, and as they were getting ready to get in the bus to head back to Potsdam, and I was getting ready to head back to Bath, the same guy, Jonathan, comes over to me again and made it a specific point to say, Brian, thank you for your messages this week. 
And I discovered later that that he had accepted Christ as his Savior that week as a result of of the messages that I shared. His his thank yous were affirmation that I needed in my life, that, that what I'm doing with my life has value. Several weeks ago, I was out with a men's group on a canoe trip. Uh, one where before the trip, I asked them, are any of you going swimming today? And they said, no, it's too cold. And by the end of the trip, they were all soaking wet, including me. Um, but as we were at my cabin the night before, and as I shared with them from God's word, a couple of these men came up to me and said, Brian, thank you for what you shared tonight. It ministered to my heart. They were affirming what God had called me to do. Sometimes in ministry, affirmations come through emails. This one says, Hi, Brian, I'm, I'm Lynn, Nathan's mom. You just met him this week during the Camp Mandeville canoe trip, the tall 16-year-old redhead. My son has a quiet sense of self-confidence that he didn't have prior to going to camp. I think this experience was wonderful for him. Thanks for being involved in the lives of these and other teens. You and Bob are really on the front lines of the battlefield. I used to work with kids and know that one can get weary. I guess I would encourage you not to cease from doing good. Her email was an affirmation, an encouragement in my life. As I get back from trips and as I get thank yous from camp, from group leaders, it's an affirmation that what I'm doing, that God is, is using my life and my ministry. Another way that I'm affirmed is when, when some of you who are supporters of my ministry write me notes of encouragement. I need that. Sometimes I feel like I'm a kayaker out there all alone. And your notes of encouragement affirm me. Ultimately, affirmers create a new quality of courage and desire, and they renew our passion. So the second partner that I've got in my trip today is the affirmer. The next partner that I'd like to introduce to you as we go down the Grand Canyon today is the intercessor. Somebody who has accepted the responsibility of holding us up in prayer. Turn with me to the book of Luke, if you would please, where we see an example of an intercessor. Luke chapter 22. These seats are more comfortable than the ones out there anyway, right? Yeah. I, I was going to find some people that had actually rafted with me before, but I figured out in this group all of them are over 40 now. So I didn't, didn't want to uh, <clears throat> do that. Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32, we see Jesus interceding, interceding for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and that when you have turned back, that you'll strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter in ministry was prone to denial. And so he said, I'm going to intercede for you. In John chapter 17, we find that Jesus intercedes for us in our lives. Verse 15 of chapter 17, he says, I, I pray that God would keep you from the evil one. 
Verse 21, that you would be one. And in verse 24, that you would be where he is. One of the most fascinating and perhaps frightening examples of intercessor interceding that I've ever heard about were some words that came out of the mouth of a Salvation Army officer praying over some of his first officers from the Army to leave England and go to America in 1860. How'd you like to have an intercessor like this? Here's what he prayed for those ladies in the Salvation Army. Lord, these ladies are going to America to preach the gospel. If they're fully given up to thee, be with them and bless them and grant them success. But if they're not faithful, drown them, Lord, drown them. I mean, there's, there's intercessing. Don't be praying that for me when I'm out on the river. Over the years in my life, I've enjoyed a number of intercessors. Some of you, as you fill out the prayer slips and post on the board back here in the vestibule, some of you have interceded for me and for my ministry over the years. Others um, enjoy getting a list of the events that I have coming up, my schedule. And people all the time come up to me and say, Brian, I'm praying for you in this trip and that trip. And I, I know they're reading my newsletter. I know they're praying for me. I realize not everybody that gets my newsletter reads it. Not everybody remembers where I am. But it's encouraging to know that some people are, are interceding for the different events. Some people ask questions about, well, Brian, you know, what are some issues that you're facing in ministry? How can I be praying for you? Some of them ask what trips I have coming up so they can pray for my schedule. Others ask, you know, Brian, how's your health doing? Uh, how's, how's that battle with fatigue coming? Uh, just an update. Um, apparently my blood pressure medication that I thought was causing the fatigue isn't. And now I'm pursuing a, a sleep study here in a, two or three weeks. People say, Brian, how, how are things going with your mom? Those of you who followed my life and my ministry know that my Mom had not been doing well for a period of time and, and passed away a couple weeks ago. And I know that people were interceding for me in handling that situation. People often come up and ask for an update on some, something specific in my life. But the ultimate prayer of intercession for a missionary is that our spiritual passion be restored and that we not grow weary. So partner number three in my raft today as we go down the river, the, the intercessor. The next partner in ministry I'd like to introduce to you today is the fellow worker. One author said this. He said, I'm not sure that most of us can ever reach the full extent of our energies if we're not in partnership with someone else. I came across an, an interesting um, fact. Apparently, a one draft horse has the ability to pull two tons of weight. But if you put two draft horses together, they have the ability to pull 23 tons of weight. It's the, the multiplying effect of having forces working together. Well, the scripture is full of examples of people with fellow workers. I think of Paul who had Barnabas, who traveled the world evangelizing and planning churches. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy and shares with him the 
involvement of some of the different partners, both those he'd sent out, those who had deserted him, and those that were still with him. Billy Graham was famous for having a team of workers. Moody, the great evangelist, had the musician Sankey who who went with him everywhere that he went. And I wonder how many people could have been used more effectively if they'd been part of a team. Now, sometimes as people look at at my life in my ministry, um, realizing that I'm a one-person operation, they kind of see me as a lone kayaker. But the, the reality is that um, in ministry, though this is what I look like, that's not the way it works. But instead of being a kayaker, I'm actually a canoer. And this time, instead of being in the front of the canoe with a mentor behind me, this time in, in life and in ministry, I'm riding in the back of the canoe. And I'm partnering with different people. Last winter, as I paddled the canoe of my ministry, 13 different youth leaders ministered with me in the front of their canoe as I spent the weekend with their group. In April, as we went rafting down the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, somewhere between 15 and 20 different people were figuratively in the front of my canoe as I was partnering with their church youth group, helping them to use the tool of an event like that to reach young people. As summer rolled around, some of the people riding in the front of the canoe partnering with me were camp directors as I was helping them lead a wilderness trip to the Adirondacks or for another camp helping them to lead a wilderness trip to a lake in Pennsylvania. So though people see my ministry as a one-person ministry, I'm, I'm really not. I don't sponsor events that individuals can sign up and come on the event, but the The trips that I do with different groups are their event, and I'm partnering with that youth leader or that pastor, helping them to use camping as a tool in ministry. So it's important that people have the right concept of the ministry of Christian camping services. For some missionaries, one of their greatest partners, fellow workers in ministry, is their wife, their spouse. Now, this morning, Ray showed some pictures of some of his grandkids. His wife is here. A couple weeks ago, I was here. The missionaries showed some pictures of their family. Um, I thought this morning, I'll I'll put up some pictures of my family. I'll put up a blank screen. I'll introduce my wife. There'll be a blank screen. I'll introduce my kids. There'll be a blank screen. I'll introduce my staff. There'll be a blank screen, but I decided not to do that. But for a lot of people in ministry, one of their greatest fellow workers is their spouse, who many times has given up their own desires, their own ambitions to support their spouse in ministry. One of the greatest examples, I think, of a person like like this is Jackie Snavely, who who faithfully all the years has, has supported Dick in the ministry at Family Life Ministries and has been there behind the scenes. And if you ask Dick or Jackie, they they tell you that situation. As I think of spouses supporting their their spouse in ministry, I think of the other side of the equation. I think of all the pastors and youth leaders today that I know that are out of the ministry because their spouse left them. Greatly used men of God. 
Some of them personal friends of mine who their greatest fellow worker decided, I can't stand behind you anymore. I've got my own direction, my own ambitions for my life. Now this morning in my life, being a single person, sometimes I feel like I'm in a kayak. My mom and dad are both gone. I don't have any siblings. I don't have a spouse. I don't have any kids. I don't have any staff members. That's why some of the partners that I'm talking about this morning in my ministry are are so important. But those dynamics also require in my life that I try to find some personal fellowship, professional fellowship. We used to laugh when I was on staff at Family Life Ministries 20 years ago. You know, sometimes staff meetings weren't our favorite time of the week. But you know what? After I left staff at Family Life and started my own ministry, I missed those staff meetings. I miss those times of getting together with like-minded men and women in ministry. So today in my life, I have to look for that professional fellowship. Lord willing, this coming Wednesday, I'll be heading down to the Harrisburg area to meet with a bunch of program directors from camps in Pennsylvania. People that are in the same type of ministry, not exactly the same, but the same camping type of ministries that I am. On Thursday, Lord willing, I'll be meeting with a pastor's fellowship in the Penyan area just fellowshipping with pastors. Sometimes, for me, it's, it's going to pastors' conferences. Sometimes it's going to youth leader conferences. But I need that support of other people in my life who are in ministry because sometimes ministry feels lonely. Sometimes I forget that I have partners in ministry and I need encouragement. Well, the next partner in ministry that I'd like to introduce to you this morning is the giver. Many times when missionaries come to churches like this on a missions conference, they talk about some of the givers in their life. Turn to the book of Philippians, where we see in Scripture an example of this kind of partner in ministry. Philippians chapter 4. guys are looking pretty comfortable back here. Philippians chapter 4. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And beginning in verse 15, he says this. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia... Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. In order for Paul to do the ministry that he did, he needed partners in his ministry who gave financially. Turn to the book of Luke, where we see some of the givers who stood behind our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about how Jesus was supported as he traveled around with the apostles? 
Here we have one of the examples in Scripture. Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Even Jesus, in his life in ministry, needed some partners who stood with him financially. This morning, I'd like you to meet some of the giving partners in my life, in my ministry. Thirty-two years ago, as I got out of Bible school and joined the staff of Family Life Ministries, the first person to respond to my support letter was a Sunday school teacher I'd had as a little child. And she sent back my financial support card and said, Brian, I'd be willing to support you for $2 a month. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot today. It wasn't a huge amount 32 years ago. But her $2 played a vital part in, in my life and in my ministry. As I think of givers in my life today, I think of a widow who gives $10 a month to my ministry out of her Social Security check. That's all she can afford, but she's playing a vital part, this widow, in the life of my ministry. As I think of people who have given, I think of a call that came last winter from a man on my mailing list. And he read in my newsletter that while I was on one of my weekend camping trips, the pipes under my mobile home had froze up and, and burst. And he called up and he said, Brian, next week I, I'd like to take a day off from work and come over and, and help you fix the broken pipes. And this guy, out of the spirit of giving, who I barely knew, spent the day under my mobile home helping me solve problems of broken pipes. As I think of some of the givers in my ministry, I think of a man who, when I was building my cabin, sold a piece of property. And I had no advance warning for this, but a check came in to my account here at the church. He had tithed on the sale of his piece of property to my ministry of Christian camping services. It was a tremendous blessing to me. This church, the body here at Alfred Almond Bible Church, for many, many years has been standing behind me in ministry as a partner through your monthly giving. Some people, it's, it's a one-time gift. Some people, it's not a financial gift, but it's something physical. A few years ago, I got a call on my answering machine. It was a guy from the Honeyoy area. And he said, Brian, could you use a motorboat? The boat that I used for the next few years was, was donated by this man who wanted to have his boat go to ministry. Seven or eight years ago, I got a, a phone call from a widow. Her husband had just passed away, and she said, Brian, my husband had a, a pickup truck that he kept garaged in the wintertime. He only used it during the warmer months, and she said, my husband passed away recently, and, and I'm, I don't think he'd want me to sell the truck. I, she said, I think he would prefer that it be used in ministry. Could you use a pickup truck? 
So the summer pickup truck that I'm still driving and have out here today was given by a partner in ministry. As I think of people who have given, I think of the many volunteers who back 10 years ago when I was building my log cabin for ministry came and spent time pounding spikes in logs and putting insulation between logs and and swinging a hammer. And some of them, many of them are, are here in this midst. Others of them came from different churches across New York and Pennsylvania. But every one of them a partner in ministry. As I think of partners in ministry, I think of a phone call that I got back in 1980. I was living in a farmhouse in Avoca at the time, and some of you have heard me tell this story. I was on staff at Family Life, and it was one of our staff members by the name of Mike. He called me up Christmas Eve, and he said, Brian, are you doing anything tonight? I said, no, nothing major. He said, well, come on over to Jesse's house. Jesse and I have something we'd like to give you. Jesse was an older lady at that time in her 80s, kind of a mentor, grandmother figure to Mike. I got over to Jesse's house there in Avoca. I rang the doorbell, and I'm thinking now, what could they be giving me for Christmas? The only thing I thought of is maybe some Christmas cookies. I walked into Jesse's living room, and there was a box there with a little tissue paper in it and a key. I opened it up. That's all that was in there. Mike said over here on the desk is a note that goes with it. The note said this. Brian the box holds a key. The key goes to the front door of my mobile home. I'm giving it to you as a Christmas gift. It's my way of saying thank you for the Bible verse memory pack you gave me for Christmas three years ago. You've played a large part in my life, and so I want to repay you. This also helps me give to Jesus the biggest gift of all. The gift includes my trailer, one month's rent, wood both for burning and building, electric till February 7th, and whatever else God lays on my heart before them. And for the last 28 years, I've been living in a mobile home that was given to me by somebody that was a partner in ministry. The last partner that I'd like to introduce to you today is a physical helper. Make Steve do double duty here. And those are people who have the gift of helps. Turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, where we see some scriptural examples of physical helpers. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, we have Paul writing to Timothy, the context of the letter here. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, he writes this to Timothy. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. And then two verses later in verse 13, Paul addresses Timothy and he says, When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with you at Carpus, at, with Carpus at Troas, and bring my scrolls and especially the parchments. Does bringing a coat to somebody in ministry sound like a significant task? 
And yet, in that way, Timothy was a partner with Paul in ministry. When, when people look at my ministry, again, this is what they many times see. They say, Brian, you're just, you're just a one-person operation. You know, they don't realize all the people who stand behind the scenes as partners. Who are some of those physical helpers that lie below the surface of the ministry of Christian camping services? One is a group from the Buffalo area, from a church, who a year and a half ago came to my cabin and spent a weekend cutting firewood, helping to make it possible for the retreats I had the coming winter. Another physical helper in my life is is a man the last couple summers who on some of my busier days has come over and, and helped me get some of my camping gear around and prepared for camping trips. Another is a group from the Rochester area who came down to my cabin several years ago for a weekend for a work crew. And they took all my bunk beds apart upstairs, took them out to the back, and one of the guys was a welder, and a couple of the guys spent all day welding side rails to go on my bunks so that when I have little kids there, they stop falling out from the top bunk. (laughs) Fortunately, I don't have little kids there very often. Some of the other physical helpers in my life, the the 60 or 70 people who, who volunteered when... We were building the cabin. One of the great partners in my life that most people never never met, never heard about, was my mother. My mother never went on a raft trip, never went canoeing, never had any desire to. I'd come back from raft trips in April when it was pouring rain, and my mom would say, what fun did the teens have today? And I'd have to explain to my 88-year-old mom that there's more value to some of the trips that I do than just fun. But up until my mom was 92, my mom partnered with my ministry in doing something simple like doing my laundry. And people laugh when I used to tell them that my 90-year-old mom did my laundry. But at that stage in her life, that's, that's all that she could physically do, that and pray. And I believe that, that ministering in that way in, in my life gave her something of significance to do. Now things have changed. Now I just installed my first washer and dryer in my mobile home that I've ever owned in my life. <laughs> My mom partnered with me for many years and and did my ironing. Now, praise God, somebody came along and said, I'd like to partner with you in ministry. I'd like to help you with your ironing. My mom used to help me stuff envelopes and put labels on the envelopes until about the age of 90 or 91. And when she got to the point that she couldn't put the labels on straight enough and keep the envelopes in the proper order so that the proper letter would go in the proper envelope. My mom was a partner in ministry. As I think of partners in ministry, I think of a staff member at Family Life who every time I need to load canoes, I swing down to Family Life. I live half a mile down the road, and he hops in my car, and we go up to my driveway, and he helps me load the canoes in preparation for trips. As I think of partners in the ministry, physical helpers, I think of a youth group who came to my cabin a couple years ago and built the woodshed where I store my firewood. 
As I think of partners in ministry, physical helpers, I think of a childhood friend who last year after my heart surgery came up from the state of Maryland with his son and spent a day, day and a half out in my yard helping me get my boat ready for my summer camping ministry. Partners in ministry. Probably no point in my life if I, was I reminded more of the need for physical helpers than after I had my heart surgery. It's pretty humbling when you're housebound and you can't do anything. And as I laid in the hospital bed after my surgery, you know, my type A personality that Gordon McDonald is rebuking me about, um, I lay there in the hospital bed and I thought, okay, I can get this person to do this, I can get this person to do this, I can hire this person to do this. But there was one task in my life at that particular point that I didn't have a solution for. See, after I had my heart surgery, they had these things called compression stockings that I had to wear for the next three or four weeks. And the instructions were that I couldn't put them on myself because it was too much pull for my, as my chest was healing. I'm laying in the hospital bed and they're saying, well, you know, can your wife help you put them on? No. Do you have any kids that can help you put them on? No. Finally, God brought to my mind the name of a gal who was a neighbor. And I thought, how am I going to approach this phone call? <laughs> and I called her up and after chatting with her for 15 or 20 minutes, kind of giving her an update on my physical situation, I said, you know, the, re the real reason I called today is I've got a kind of an odd request for you. And she was a nurse, so after I explained it to her, she understood. But I said, is there any possibility that you could come over every morning and put my compression stockings on and come over at night and take them off? And bless her heart, this lady, for the several weeks that I had to wear those compression stockings, was a partner in my life and a partner in my ministry through her physical help. So this morning, we've met some of the partners in ministry. But our theme for the mission conference this year is not just partners in ministry, but partners in harvest. So I'd like to kind of bring things to a close this morning by sharing with you some of the fruit. This is Rachel. She was on a camping trip in the Adirondack Mountains with me three summers ago with Camp Mandeville. The camp director had shared with us before the week, you know, which kids had been to camp before and probably were already born-again believers and which ones were not. And he'd shared with me about Rachel, and he said she, she probably doesn't know the Lord. It was about Wednesday night of our five-day camping trip. We're sitting on the beach. I'd taken Rachel inner tubing and water skiing that week. I'd kind of won the right to be heard in her life. I was doing the spiritual sharing that week as well. Wednesday night, I, I sat down on the beach next to Rachel, and we got talking, and I said, Rachel, if, if you were to die, do you know for sure where you'd spend eternity? And she said, no, I, I really don't. And at that point, I, I shared the gospel with her, and I asked her, I said, Rachel, would, would you like to make that decision for Christ? And she said, well, I, I'm not quite ready yet. But the next night, Thursday night, as we were on the beach, after our evening service, she goes over to one of the female counselors, and the two of them disappear down the beach. A few minutes later, word comes back to me that Rachel had just trusted Christ as her Savior. Now, who had a part in Rachel's salvation? Was it just me? Was it just the camp staff? No, it was every one of those partners that I've introduced to you this morning.
It was the partners of giving. It was the partners of interceding. It was those mentors who have never met me, many of them personally. This morning, as I think of Harvest, I think of a youth group from Pennsylvania that came to my cabin a few years ago. One of the young ladies rounded up a bunch, about 10 of her classmates at school who are not Christians and brought them on this retreat with her church youth group because she wanted to see her classmates come to know the Jesus that she knew. And as we had our evening service and as I gave an invitation, six of them that night trusted Christ as their Savior. The harvest. Two years ago, I had a group from the Lockport area at my church for a two-night winter retreat. Saturday evening, I had just finished the service, finished speaking, was still hanging around in the living area of my cabin. These two little seventh-grade girls come over to me. And one of them speaks to me, and I'm a little bit threatening to a seventh-grader, although they'd gotten to know me over the last 24 hours. And she said, Brian, my friend here has something that she'd like to share with you. I turned to her seventh-grade friend, and she said, Upstairs in your cabin, my friend here just led me to Jesus Christ. The harvest. Two summers ago, we were camping in the Adirondack Mountains, and I met a girl by the name of Kristen. Her parents had recently split up. Apparently, her mom was a Christian. Her dad wasn't. And it was long about Wednesday. I have got my motorboat out, taking teenagers skiing out on the lake. Kind of a rainy, dreary afternoon, so we had a campfire going. Those that weren't skiing were hanging around the campfire trying to keep warm. And I came back in, and at one point, somebody comes over to my boat and says, Brian, start praying for Kristen. The story, they were sitting around the campfire, and... Kristen said, hey, let's go around and share something that we're afraid of. So, you know, mid-afternoon, other campers start sharing things they're afraid of. When it came Kristen's turn, she said, I'm afraid of death because I don't know where I'm going to spend eternity. One of the female camp staff came over to Kristen and said, Kristen, you can know. She and Kristen went down the beach. The next time I came in with my boat, Somebody comes running over to me and says, Brian, Kristen just trusted Christ as her Savior. I got a chance to share with her again this past summer on a camping trip with her camp. As I think of the harvest, I think of the many salvation decisions at various camps that God has given me the privilege of ministering to over the last 25 years. As I think of the term harvest, I think of a church I spoke in back in April where after my message, one lady, one adult lady, trusted Jesus as her Savior. As I think of partners in the harvest, I think of Jonathan, who was on a camping trip with me to the Adirondacks this last summer. And about Tuesday, one of the camp staff who knew Jonathan a little bit was concerned because Jonathan was spending a lot of time by himself. So the, uh, the camp maintenance man who knew Jonathan encouraged one of the counselors to go spend some time with Jonathan. They talked for a while, and word kind of got back to me that Jonathan's problem is that he's under spiritual conviction. The camp staff began praying for Jonathan. Throughout the next couple days, different ones spent time with him. 
the last night at camp, I finished my message, and he's the guy who came over to me and said, Brian, thanks for sharing the messages with me this week. At that point, I didn't know what had happened. We got back to the dock. Again, he came up to me and said, Brian, thanks for your messages. They got on a bus and headed back to Potsdam. I got in my truck and headed back to New York Friday night. The next Monday, I called the camp director, and I said, how'd the campfire go when you got back to camp? And he said, Jonathan shared with us that on Thursday, he made that decision to trust Jesus Christ as his Savior. The harvest. Every one of these partners in the raft on the journey had a part in in Jonathan's life. But not all of the harvest is salvation decisions. I find on, on the trips that I do with youth groups, the majority of the kids already know Christ. But over the years, thousands who have made steps in their Christian journey on events that God has directed me to be involved in. So our theme, partners in the gospel, partners in the harvest. This morning, my question for you is, how can you be a partner this morning to ministry? Some of you maybe don't have the desire to go on 30 youth retreats a year. Some of you don't have an interest in going rafting in April when it's 40 degrees and pouring rain. But this morning, every one of you can be a partner in ministry. Because people in ministry need mentors. They need affirmers. They need fellow workers. They need givers. They need intercessors. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning for ministry. God, I thank you for the 32 years of ministry you've allowed me to be involved in. And though, Lord, sometimes it does feel lonely. Sometimes it does feel like I'm out there all alone. Thank you that you remind me in those points of the many partners who lie below the surface. Who, if we were to drain away the water of the lake or the reservoir, would be visible to everybody around us. Lord, this morning, one day in eternity, those partners are going to share in the rewards in heaven because of the part you've led them to have in some ministry. Lord, show us each where you desire to use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.